From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. Very happy new year to all of you. I hope you had a great holiday. I'm Jerry Baker. I'm editor at large of the journal. If you're not already subscribing to Free Expression, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. But this week, well, it's finally here, election year. We are now just over a week away from the first votes to be cast in the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Iowans go to their party caucuses a week from Monday, the 15th of January. And then a week later, it's the New Hampshire primary. But are the two parties' primary races actually over before they've even started? Donald Trump continues to hold a huge lead in opinion polls over all comers in the Republican primary race. And Joe Biden is comfortably ahead of any Democratic challengers and seemingly determined to run for another term, despite doubts about his age and ability to do the job. And yet history tells us that counting votes before they've been cast is always a somewhat perilous business. And the prognostications of pundits can be as flawed this close to the actual voting as they were when they were making their long-distance forecasts. Still, that's never stopped us from speculating. So this week, that's exactly what we're going to do. And we're going to tell you what is about to happen in the weeks and months ahead. To do that, I'm pleased to say I'm joined by veteran pollster and political commentator Frank Lance. Frank has worked on many political campaigns in the US and overseas over many, many years. You will have seen him perhaps most recently with those focus groups on television around election time and major political events where he quizzes voters about their thoughts and their voting intentions. He's also written and commented extensively on elections and politics, and especially on the language that politicians use to convince and motivate voters. And I'm glad to say he joins me now. Frank Luntz, a very happy new year and welcome to the podcast. Same to you. I'm hoping that 2024 is better than what we experienced in 2023. I think we can all say amen to that. So, Frank, the one thing, as I said in my introduction, that is absolutely predictable about uh, elections is that people will speculate and will make uh, forecasts and prognostications and that most of them or many of them will be wrong. But that's not going to stop us here, especially as we are now just over a week away from the first votes being cast. Lots I want to talk to you about, especially about the kind of historic nature of this election with uh, president, incumbent president, a former president running, how it may all unfold when we get to the general election and how the various political and criminal and various other proceedings may affect the outcome this year. But let's get started with the votes being cast very soon in Iowa, New Hampshire. The Iowa caucuses take place a week from Monday. Let's talk about the Republicans. Obviously, it's a main area of interest. Polling continues to suggest that Donald Trump has a huge lead nationally, has a big lead in polling in Iowa. And yet we have seen surprise results in the past. What factors do you think could produce anything other than what the polls suggest is likely to be a big Donald Trump victory in the Iowa caucuses on the 15th of January? There's nothing to suggest that Donald Trump will have anything but a landslide victory. And in fact, I tell people like you that you really should plan on the week after the New Hampshire primary. Historically, people have won in Iowa and gone on to do absolutely nothing. That Iowa makes a statement, New Hampshire makes a difference. But there's still things to learn from the Iowa caucuses. Number one, does Donald Trump get over 50% of the vote? Because if he does, If he gets more than the other candidates combined, that really is significant. Number two, do Trump voters come out? Do they are they as likely to participate in 2024 as they were in 2016 and 2020? That's a key measurement of his potential. And number three, 
Is he able to attract voters under age 40? Because that's always been a problem for him. The average age of a Trump voter is deceased. It is very old. And he, to be assured of being viable against Joe Biden, he has to do better among voters in their 40s. So those are basically the three things that I'm watching for in next week's caucus vote. Iowa is notoriously hard to poll really accurately. It's a caucus state, as we know, in which voters literally obviously have to go along to their caucuses and participate in the process. And it's always hard to know, especially on a cold January night, who's going to do that. So looking at the polls, I'm just looking at the latest polls right now that we have. Trump has had a big lead. But Ron DeSantis has always been the principal challenger in Iowa, at least over the last six months or so. There's some evidence that Nikki Haley may be closing the gap. You've said very helpfully that we should look out to see whether Trump gets over 50 percent. The second place finisher is going to be critical, though, too, isn't it? Well, the second place finisher will get a boost of publicity since everybody knows that Trump is going to win and the media is trying to attract attention. That said, I don't know that the hangover effect of Iowa will have much of an impact on New Hampshire since there are going to be two New Hampshire debates between the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary. And I think that those debates will be far, far more important in determining the outcome of New Hampshire, which is more up for grabs. You and I have been, I've met you on the road in Iowa, New Hampshire, in these early stages of presidential election years. And it is the case, isn't it, that as you just said, first of all, Iowa doesn't necessarily predict anything. And but quite often that New Hampshire does go in a different direction. Donald Trump famously didn't win Iowa in 2016. You know, Barack Obama won Iowa in 2008 on the Democratic side. Hillary Clinton went on to win New Hampshire. So again, it I hate to say this, especially given that well, this is what we're spending this podcast talking about, but do these contests really matter very much, given that quite often they do produce different outcomes and, as you say, can be affected by other factors which may not have much relevance in the wider contest? Well, people don't realize that Iowa and New Hampshire are completely different electorates. Iowa, you have to vote in public. Iowa has a significant percentage of Christian conservatives. And there's no opening for independents or Democrats to participate in Iowa. It is a more right-wing, more religious, more conservative, and it kind of tells you where the Republican base is. New Hampshire, I believe, is more knowledgeable. New Hampshire voters take their responsibilities very seriously. When I poll, I find that more than half of the people who are likely voters have actually met a presidential candidate, which is incredible when you consider that there are 337 million Americans right now. In New Hampshire, independents can vote and they can choose which primary they want to participate in. And so that expands the electorate. And I do think that New Hampshire is more reflective of the country than Iowa is. One thing I have heard, just focusing on Iowa briefly for a moment, despite what you've just said, again, that I want to talk about the Democratic contest in a minute because it's kind of strange. It's it's not like the Republican contest in lots of ways this year, and particularly over the significance of both Iowa and New Hampshire. The caucus that's happening in the Democratic Party this year isn't really even choosing the presidential nominee. It's really doing other things. They had such an incredible screw up in 2020, as we know, that Iowa will probably never have that role again on the Democratic side. So it's possible, I've heard, that you know maybe some out of a sense of mischief or maybe just because they want to participate in a genuine election, that some people may be registering as Republicans to take part in the Republican caucuses where there will be a, a genuine contest. And that that's a kind of an unknowable 
phenomenon in terms of the scale of it, and that could affect the outcome. Have you heard anything about that? Or do you think there's any chance that that could lead to maybe a surprise outcome in Iowa on the Republican side? I don't, and I feel bad because you're one of the best journalists, and I know that you want to have this story in Iowa, and I keep dragging you to the events that are eight days later. Iowa is predetermined. I'd say to you, to use an American phrase, I would eat my hat if Donald Trump is in any kind of jeopardy in Iowa. He has secured the Christian conservative vote. He has secured the economic conservative vote. He has secured the vote of most of the political figures in Iowa. He's simply dominating, and nobody else is even close. So whomever ends up in second place will get some coverage, but it's just not significant. Iowa doesn't matter in 2024. New Hampshire matters so much in 2024. If Donald Trump wins with 50% of the vote in New Hampshire, if he beats DeSantis and Nikki Haley by 15 points or more, it's over. It's done. That the elections will be determined, the major party nominees will be determined even before we get to Super Tuesday. That is still up for grabs. But Iowa is uh, it's predetermined. So let's talk briefly then about New Hampshire. The polling has been moving in New Hampshire. It is quite interesting. There was a poll just before Christmas that had Nikki Haley, I mean, really moving up quite strongly, I think actually touching 30% moving to within. I mean, it's funny that we talk about these things with the race tightening when we have to define those terms as meaning that Donald Trump's lead falls to less than 20 points. But there does seem to have been some evidence in the last month of quite significant movement to Nikki Haley. You've already talked about the significance of those debates that there will be, although, of course, Donald Trump, presumably, unless he changes his mind, won't be taking part in them. But what's going on there right now? Do you think that there is a significant movement towards Haley, what you're seeing in the polls? Again, we're still two weeks away from uh, New Hampshire. Could we see further movement towards what effect does the Chris Christie vote, which is still reasonably significant in New Hampshire, does that get squeezed and people, instead of voting for Christie, vote for Haley? How do you see that happening in the next two weeks? New Hampshire is much more up for grabs. I love doing focus groups there because I never want them to end. The voters are sophisticated. They're smart. They're aware of the issues. They've all been to town halls. They've all been to candidate forums. It's democracy at its smallest. It's democracy at its best. The governor there, Chris Nunu, endorsed Nikki Haley, and that is having a tremendous impact on her vote. Every poll has her now in the mid-20s or higher. And yes, things in motion tend to stay in motion. And if she can have more effective debate performances as she's had since the campaign began, I still don't see her defeating Donald Trump. If she did, that would be the shot or the election of the ballot heard around the world. But she is making it a race of it. And she's doing so at the expense of Governor DeSantis, who has been falling and falling and falling in Iowa and in New Hampshire. That DeSantis began six months ago when they held the first debate He was within striking distance of Trump. Now he's not within striking distance anywhere. And Haley has picked up so much of his support, primarily because of her outstanding debates, 
appearances and his being much more shaky. Now, since that last poll that I was talking about, I'm just looking it up now, it was at the St. Anselm poll, which showed Haley at 30%, 14 points behind Donald Trump. That was taken just before Christmas. Since then, we have had that moment that was universally agreed and got a lot of attention, rather bad moment for Nikki Haley when, for some reason, she didn't seem to be able to give a straight answer to the question, what was the Civil War about, or at least wasn't able to answer the question uh, with the word slavery. And that did get a lot of attention. We haven't seen any polling, I think, as far as I'm aware. You spent some time there. You're talking to people there. You may have some sense. Any sense at all whether that uh, gaffe, as uh, people commonly call these things, whether that may have hurt her, may have halted her upward movement in New Hampshire? What you just said is exactly what we've seen, which is that it did not hurt her, but it certainly did not help her, the coverage of it. And we are now seven days from that event, and people are still talking about it. I believe that yesterday's conversation, town halls in Iowa, will divert attention from it, finally. But you never want to have a gaffe this close to the election. I'm reminded of 1976, when Gerald Ford was gaining literally a percent every single day in his march towards Jimmy Carter's insurmountable lead. And a single comment in a debate where he suggested that Poland was not dominated by the Soviet Union. Nobody left him because of it, but it stopped that progression, stopped him dead in his tracks, and he had closed a 33-point deficit up to about 10 points at that moment. But in the end, he fell two, three points behind. We could have the same situation in New Hampshire. She was narrowing the gap every single day, there are three key events between now and the New Hampshire primary that could change things, but she's got to get over that slavery lack. I can't say that slavery comment, that lack of slavery comment. It's really ridiculous when you think about it, that there's so many things that are more important, but anything that diverts attention from her up to now pretty successful campaign is very damaging in these last days before January 23rd. Those uh, three events you talk about, right? you're talking about the two debates that are scheduled, uh, is that right? And perhaps, despite your dismissal of it, maybe any momentum that may emerge out of Iowa, those are the things that you're talking about that could affect New Hampshire? Yes, there will be a head-to-head between DeSantis and Haley, and then there'll be two more debates in the state of New Hampshire itself. Every debate is the chance for one of those two, Haley or DeSantis, to emerge successful. Because in the end, people want an alternative to Trump. But I need to emphasize, no candidate ever in American history has had the kind of lead that Donald Trump has in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada, the first four states. No one has ever had this lead and lost the nomination. That's how significant the lead is. So let's really, first of all, ignore that and then move to really idle and crazy speculation. And let's say, for the sake of argument, for the sake of hypothesis, that Nikki Haley does manage to pull off a stunning win in New Hampshire. Say she has been closing. She overcomes this gaffe about slavery. She has a couple of good debates, a couple of good events. Maybe Trump doesn't look quite so good coming out of Iowa. She squeaks out a win in New Hampshire. How does that change the trajectory of the race? As you just said, Trump still apparently has a very large lead, even in South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state which is obviously the next sort of key contest in late February. How would that change, though, if she were able to pull off a win in New Hampshire? As a pollster, my job is not to speculate. But because you're the great Jerry Baker, I'll do it for you only. She then has to prove that she can win in her home state. Because in the end, if you can't do that, 
If you've been governor from that state and they choose somebody else, she has to win two places. She would have to win in New Hampshire and she would have to win in South Carolina. Without those two victories, Donald Trump then rolls through Super Tuesday and it's over. We have not had a situation like this in modern times where the Democratic race and the Republican race are so predetermined. That said, what is not predetermined at all is what happens in November because anything can happen. A third party candidate, uh, disruptions within the two political parties, an ugly convention, either in Chicago for the Democrats or Milwaukee for the Republicans. It seems like the nominees are determined and 70% of Americans aren't happy about that and want another alternative for November. So there is a lot of speculation. It's just not over these early primary contests. I take the point. I want to talk briefly about the Democrats first and then come on to the general election. But just one final point on the Republican primary and, you know, getting away from the immediate dynamics of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, those early primary races up to Super Tuesday. And the larger question, I think one of the reasons this race does seem so settled on both sides is that we're in a very unusual historical situation. We have, in effect, two incumbents, right? Each party has kind of an incumbent president. Now, many Republicans continue to regard Donald Trump as kind of the legitimate re-elected president in 2020, but he was clearly the president for four years. He's running again as kind of as a sort of a quasi-incumbent. And we have an incumbent on the Democratic side, obviously, in the shape of the actual incumbent, Joe Biden. And so, as we all know, historically speaking, incumbents have extraordinary advantages in general elections, but especially, obviously, in their own primary elections. So it would be, in many ways kind of historically out of the ordinary if Donald Trump were not to get the Republican nomination. It would almost be as though the incumbent president were defeated in his own party, wouldn't it? That's why it's inconceivable to me. And let me add to that. Because of the indictments, Trump is more likely to get the Republican nomination. Because he's been thrown off of the Colorado main ballots, Trump is more likely to get the nomination. Because the world has condemned him makes Trump more likely to win the Republican nomination because Republicans have rallied around him. They do believe his accusations that he's a victim. They do believe his accusations that he is being persecuted, not just prosecuted. And so every one of these attacks has made Trump's march to the nomination that much easier. Now, it will have an impact in the fall, but that's why it just seems so inconceivable that he's thrown off his game before the convention. We're going to take a break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Frank Luntz and Election 2024. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with pollster and commentator Frank Luntz, and we're looking ahead to the first votes 
that will be cast in the US presidential election and what may lay beyond in 2024. All right, let's briefly talk about the Democrats, and then I want to talk about the general election. The Democrat primary is very strange this year. Again, obviously, we've got the incumbent president running. For all intents and purposes, we have to continue to believe what he says, that despite the doubts about his age and everything else, he's running. The race is particularly strange because those traditional early contests, Iowa and New Hampshire, well, Iowa, as we've just said, but there isn't a kind of formal caucus process in Iowa for the Democrats this time. And New Hampshire, although it's holding its primary because, you know, it wants to preserve its first in the nation status, been ignored or downgraded by the Democratic Party in the interest of elevating South Carolina. So Joe Biden is not formally on the ballot in the Democratic primary in New Hampshire. Yet now we're in this kind of slightly weird situation because he does face challenges in the Democratic primary, particularly from Dean Phillips, the Minnesota congressman, and he is running. There is this sort of campaign for a kind of writing campaign for Joe Biden on the Democratic ballot in the New Hampshire primary. Do we just have to ignore New Hampshire on the Democratic side? Or if there is a significant vote for a non-Biden candidate, or if the Biden write-in numbers are not that good, does it have any significance, do you think? I will be paying attention to it if that number ends up at 30% or higher. If Dean Phillips, who has been running for months now, is able to get 30% of the vote, That to me will be significant because that tells me that there are enough people who are willing to come out knowing that Joe Biden's getting the nomination and willing to express themselves as being anti-Joe Biden. In the polling right now, Phillips gets less than 10% of the vote, but obviously that's not going to be accurate because the ballot itself, as you say, does not have Joe Biden's name on it. What to me is more important is that normally Democrats would be voting in a Democratic caucus and independents would choose the caucus where they feel closest to. It means that there could be a higher percentage than usual of anti-Republican votes voting in the Republican primary. And that's good for anyone other than Donald Trump. I actually think that the polling in New Hampshire has a chance of being wrong because of that. Normally, about 20% of the independents end up in the Republican primary. I think it's going to be 70 or 80 percent. And that gives hope to a DeSantis, to a Christie, and most importantly, to a Nikki Haley. Again, I'm sorry to drag us back to the Democrats. That's a very interesting point, and we'll see how that plays out. But just quickly on the Democratic side, it is, of course, historically striking that not one, but actually two Democratic incumbent presidents have been felled by New Hampshire primary. Obviously, Lyndon Johnson, anybody with long political memories remembers 1968, but also Harry Truman, of course, in 1952, was essentially dissuaded from continuing the possibility of running in 1952 by the New Hampshire primary. Do you see, you've just mentioned that number for Dean Phillips, maybe 30%. Do you see that any chance New Hampshire could deliver that kind of a blow to Joe Biden that it's done in the past, the Democratic president? Well, the one that's more recent is Jimmy Carter when Ted Kennedy ran against him in 1980. Carter did win in New Hampshire, but Kennedy's campaign was so damaging that Carter never really recovered. I just don't see that here. I believe that Joe Biden is the weakest candidate against the Republicans. But he doesn't believe that. The White House doesn't believe that. The Democratic establishment doesn't believe that. And so that's why they're coming out for him. When the election becomes serious on Labor Day and we sit down for the 
three presidential debates that will probably occur. We'll see if Biden will participate and whether Trump will participate. You think there will be? Everybody I speak to thinks says that they just won't happen, given A, probably not in Biden's interest, given he's not on the sharpest of form, and B, the hostility between the two. And, you know, Republicans have already rejected the traditional presidential commission on debate. I mean, you actually think there will be debates? I think Trump would be insane not to do this, because if you can't defeat Joe Biden in a debate at 81 years of age... Well, that's not necessarily an excuse. Sorry, I'm being a little provocative there, but no, sorry, carry on. I can't imagine him backing away from it, but then he's done things that I could never have imagined almost every day. The public will want to see this debate. The public will want to know what would a second Trump presidency look like. They will want to know, can Joe Biden handle himself? I believe the audience would be huge. And I think that the pressure from the public to host these debates, to have these debates would be unbreakable. I can't imagine the candidates saying no. And the one thing that we're not talking about, which we should be, because here's the real wild card, is a no labels candidate, is a third party candidate. Is that someone who's significant? In our polling, a third party candidate starts with 20% of the vote. That means you're almost at the point where you win electoral votes. A third party candidate, when you have the two major party nominees with unfavorability scores as high as it is, you have to take a look at the potential of what that means. I recognize that they will not be chosen until March, but as a pollster, I'm already looking at the viability and the prognosis what would be the path for that third party candidate to make it into the debates, which is 15 percent public support and what states states they could win in the Electoral College. Yeah, Frank, just one final point on the Democrats before we move on to that. Every Democrat I speak to, they look at the evidence Biden intends to run, despite what we've said about New Hampshire, Biden will presumably comfortably prevail in the primary. I still meet many who say it's not a given that he will still be the candidate in November. A, given his poor polling ratings right now against Trump, and they are pretty poor. B, given the doubts within the great doubts in his own party, we've seen these polls that show as many as two thirds of Democrats don't want him to run again, that actually he will at some point after the primary process or when the primary process is essentially settled, there's still a possibility that he will step down and it will be left to the Democratic convention in Chicago, <laughs> historically resonant moment that. In Chicago in August, that that convention will pick the candidate. Do you think there's much of a chance of that? That is completely speculation. There is no human being other than Joe Biden and Jill Biden who know the answer to that. As a pollster, is really dangerous for me to venture into something that I have absolute and none of us. There is no one in America who can answer that question other than those two individuals. What I do know is this. If Michelle Obama were to decide that she wanted to be the Democratic nominee, she would take it. And she would probably take the presidential election as well. But other than her, there's no one waiting in the wings. Kamala Harris is the lowest approval rating of any vice president since Dan Quayle. And he's got the lowest approval rating of any VP since Aaron Burr. So she's not viable. There are other Democrats who could run. But we have no evidence of this at this point. So we have to deal with what's right in front of us. All right. So we spent 25 minutes getting to the point where we started and getting to the point that everybody believes is the inevitable outcome, which is that come some point in the spring, it's clear that we have a Biden v. Trump general election. Now, let's talk about how that works. And in particular, talk about your polling that you've said you've done on the third party. We know that there is an openness to a third party candidate. We know that polling suggests there's never been a higher level of dissatisfaction with the two mainstream candidates than we have right now. And yet we also know that not since Ross Perot was the last 
person to get a really significant proportion of the vote in 1992 when he got 19%, and again in 1996 when I think he got about 9% uh, as a third-party candidate. We know all of the institutional political and other factors that militate against a third-party candidate really doing well. Why would that be any different this time around? Why would a no-labels or whatever kind of a third-party candidate might be, why would they be able to break through all of those institutional and other constraints that have stopped them in the past? Because so many Americans believe that the country is off on the wrong track. And unlike most elections, this is not a lower middle class or a working class or an upper middle class feeling or perception. It's everybody. Because there is a single word that we have identified in our research that stands out more than any other that 70% of Americans agree with. And that's the word enough. Now you can end the sentence with enough politics as usual, enough of the partisanship, enough of the poison of the negativity, enough. But you have 70%, and it's a majority of both Republicans and Democrats. And you have a desire for a candidate who offers results, a candidate who doesn't play the traditional partisan game, a candidate who tells you what they're for, not just what they're against. And it's hard to identify these attributes as being either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. What the public wants, the public overall, is not what the former president or the current president is offering. So it doesn't mean that someone comes in and doesn't explode within the first 48 hours, the first two weeks. But there is a greater demand for an alternative to Donald Trump and Joe Biden, even going back to 1992. And so I do believe that if it's a major candidate a someone who has the skills of number one, problem solving, number two, critical thinking, number three, unity, and number four, not a traditional political background. If they have those skills, that person becomes viable. The question is who, right? Everybody sees the numbers, sees that some generic third party candidate is there. They look at the numbers that show right now Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who I don't want to be too unkind, but most people think is not exactly presidential material. You know, it's still polling in double digits. But the trick always with these things is when it comes down, you have to come up with a name and a personal identity. And that person, that identity is never quite as great in the flesh and in person as the idea of a third party candidate, as someone who can reflect the dissatisfaction that people have with the two leading candidates. So Joe Manchin, who is this mysterious figure who's going to emerge from the mists of this presidential election up the middle to be this unprecedented third-party victor. Yes, I think Joe Manchin is probably the most likely conservative Democrat, challenged Joe Biden on spending and on deficits, which voters care about, was a former governor, conservative Democrat. He's got the policies that a majority of Americans would support. Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland, again, a governor. That's the advantage of these guys. Hogan, with the highest approval rating of any governor in America, a Republican in Maryland, which is a Democratic state. I've heard John Huntsman's name mentioned, who had the second highest approval rating. Once again, someone who is not considered ideological, very commonsensical, and very focused on spending issues. I've heard Admiral McRaven, who famously said, make your bed. I know it's kind of strange, but military figures do have a very high level of credibility in America at this point. 
So there are several candidates. There's one female whose name has been mentioned, Tulsi Gabbard, the former Democratic congresswoman who's actually on Republican television. Any one of these people becomes viable. The question in the end is, do they have skeletons? Can they prove that they are ready for the job? And probably most importantly, do they have the ability to show that they're not spoilers? Because in the end, if you're a spoiler, that crushes your support. Ross Perot at one point was getting over 30% of the vote. At one point, he was the leading candidate, even ahead of George Bush and Bill Clinton. You have to be able to show that you have the potential to put together that majority of electoral college votes to prove that you're viable. Because in the end, viability does matter. But Jerry, I got to tell you, with the disappointment towards the major party candidates so high right now, I've never seen the demand so great for an alternative. You've outlined some interesting names there. And as you say, if they did materialize as actual candidates, they would all face their own challenges. And they're the larger problem, though, despite what you rightly describe as the hunger among many Americans for an alternative to the two main candidates, it's also true, particularly on the Republican side, that there is an intensity of support for Donald Trump. I mean, which, again, maybe it's not 50% of the American electorate. It's maybe not 40%, but it's a very significant proportion of Republicans believe Donald Trump's claims about the 2020 election was stolen, believe this is a critical election, another of these Flight 93 elections to use the, I find rather repellent, but nonetheless, the terminology these people like to use, you know, they've got to save the country from these enemies, but Trump is the only one who can do that. They're passionately supporting him. And on the, and on the Democratic side, there are people, I think, who are very fearful that a third party candidate, whatever they may have their own doubts about Biden, and many of them do, they think, well, a third party candidate is going to let Donald Trump in by the back door. So the dynamics among both parties' bases, which after all are still going to be really important in determining the outcome, given the relatively small number of swing voters, aren't they still in the end likely to, forgive the inevitable word, and to trump the desire among a wider, but let's say less motivated base of voters for an alternative? Well, you asked me about the speculation about the Republican primary outcome. There is none. You asked me about some wild stuff that could happen with the Democrats, and there is none. Here, there actually is something. There is this grassroots movement that is demanding an alternative. There is the dissatisfaction towards American politics, towards the economy, the institutions that run the country. There actually is a case to be made that the public is looking for an alternative. I can't make that for you with the Republicans. I cannot make that for you with the Democrats, but I can make that case for you with the general election. Right. Well, Frank, we have done exactly what we're not supposed to do, which is to speculate about the election this year. I think we will take your point that the primary races are probably largely settled, but the real interest will come in the general. But one of my favorite lines of English poetry is from Hilaire Belloc, who once wrote a famous line, which goes, pay us, pass us, laugh at us, but do not quite forget we are the people of England and we have not voted yet. And nobody has voted yet in this election that everybody declares over. They will start voting in just over a week and we shall see. But in the meantime, Frank Luntz, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression. Thanks indeed very much for joining us. We'll be back next week and we'll be right on the eve of the first votes being cast in the 2024 election. Do join us then. In the meantime, have a great week and thanks again for joining us. 